Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Sarita Faye Yarmark, a feminist anthropologist currently exploring the discourse of privilege within the South African art world as a PhD candidate in the anthropology department at the University of Amsterdam through a European Research Council project Becoming Men. We are talking to Sarita about the making of her PhD and get a glimpse into all the processes that happen on the way, which as she herself admits are rarely given visibility. Sarita shares how she has come to crystallize the topic, calibrate her personal interests with those of the project, as well as the biggest challenges throughout its entirety. Sarita also shares with us the key moments of trust building in oneself as a researcher, academic and individual. She also ponders on the value of her work and its place in the production of knowledge, as well as on the feeling that academic space can provide, which as she says, can be both comforting and distracting. At the end, we ask Sarita to give advice on what are the questions one should ask oneself before embarking on this long academic pursuit. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here tonight with Sarita Jarmak, um, anthropologist and my colleague uh, for the postcard, Maria. Hi. Hello. Hi. We uh, we will be diving this evening into the the fascinating journey of Sarita's PhD. So, um, well, uh, we welcome you on this path with us. And just before we start, uh, Sarita, maybe you can tell us uh, and also our listeners a little bit about your project. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And my interest for the past five years has been. Uh, been studying basically industries of critique. So I have specifically been interested in the art industry in South Africa, or sort of like the art scene in the post-colonial and post-apartheid setting of Johannesburg. And this means that I ask questions like what is the role of progressive politics uh, like anti-racism in both the making of artwork but also in the making of an art scene that generates profit and is of course part of more of a global art economy so mm. I'm often looking at gatekeeping and meaning making in those processes. Mm. Wow. Let, take us a little bit back to the beginning of this. Uh, what, what motivated you to, to pursue this type of degree, but also this topic? So uh, we're going to have to go a little bit further back. Even further. Uh, okay. Because the project is quite um, different from where I started, but it all sort of loops mm. together. Um, so yeah. since we're exploring this sort of the making of a really long-term project, which is what a PhD is, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll start about, I think, like eight or nine years ago in 2012 when I was working in the UNESCO office in Nepal and there was a, a load shedding was happening so there was no power to work and I was looking at a bunch of these gender pamphlets that were run, or laying around 
and um, they were just, I, I think they had been also from a year, a couple years prior and a bit dusty. And of course, they were all about women and how to include women in systems mm-hmm. and spaces. So I was like, okay, cool, but where are all the men in this? And so uh, there's many people that have, of course, asked this question before me. So I think that um, someone like Nancy Dowd has called this the, the man question. And what was interesting is that following that experience, all of these programs around men and masculinity started popping up throughout the years. And after uh, UNESCO, I eventually went on to write my master's thesis on the negotiation of masculinity among marginalized communities. So I actually, oh, and then I I did my writing from a small attic apartment in Dusseldorf, Germany, uh, which Mm. is where I moved next. And there I finished the thesis. And I also applied for a lot of jobs afterwards and wrote a lot of proposals and uh, to hopefully continue my research. Yeah, would would continue with my master's yeah. topic. Uh, the topics of my master's. Sorry. When did you know that 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 you would like to continue your master's topic, or was it there for you all along? When 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 did that crystallize? I think that I just wasn't done thinking about things. I think that I wanted to think more in depth about the topics that I was dealing with. And the master's thesis is really just a semester project. I had, Mm. of course, collected data during two semesters, but it was really just a semester project to write up. And I, when thinking about after the master's, I, I, I had... I had played with both ideas, both to Mm -hmm. continue the research and also to apply for jobs as well, which I did both of those. And Mm -hmm. I did that for two years, which means a lot of rejection that happened. And so I spent a lot of time writing from the attic in Germany. And of course, I was doing different jobs here and there. But um, I think a big part of the industry is rejection, a big part of the academic industry, since you're writing all these proposals and grants and things like that. So in between um, the proposal writing and the rejections, they were spending a lot of time taking breaks and in the city, in Dusseldorf, I would go around to uh, art galleries and I started to really get into the art scene and um, exploring yeah. the institutionalization of expression, if um, sort of in hindsight, that's where I was moving towards and thinking about this idea of genius making, which is really rooted in this notion of um, individual success uh, made possible by invisibilizing labor. So this, of course, is attached more to sort of men throughout history. And this is where I was playing with these ideas and sort of mulling them over in my head and then continued writing my proposals. As someone who also graduated over a year ago and experienced quite a lot of those rejections, uh, as you mentioned, I'm interested, uh, did you want to stay in academia, though, after the master's, or were you also writing proposals for more industry-related institutions? What was your uh, yeah? I think it was... That that was exactly what I was uh, exploring. So I had been... 
I tried, you know, I had worked in NGOs. I had worked in also, or I, you know, did an internship at UNESCO. Um, my background is in special education. So I was really very interested still in continuing um, exploring literature and research and thinking critically about the institutions that I had been part of um, and wondering what else could we develop within those institutions and maybe how to put academics that are thinking critically about the systems in conversation with people, of course, that are working in those institutions as well. Mm. So I had, think that I've always done a bit of one foot in education mm. and one foot out. Um, so my application process is uh, also continued in that way, I suppose. And actually, because the proposal writing was focused on men and masculinity scholarship, um, I was often suggested to pursue a position in, gen in the gender and gender departments. Mm -hmm. And the bit interesting about it was that I would receive a lot of feedback from um, yeah, European uh, institutes and in sort of more, um, yeah, in Scandinavia or um, more northern European institutes that had said, this is nice, but we have solved gender to some extent, or gender okay. equality to some extent. Like, so we've sort of achieved gender equality, which was always a bit confusing. And, and the projects were you know, supposed to yeah, maybe focus in another area or in other spaces geographically. And it was important for me to do my project from an, well, with ethnographic methods and from an anthropological perspective. And so um, I really wanted to move towards an anthropology department. And eventually, actually, there was a project called Becoming Men that was advertised out of the University of Amsterdam and the anthropology department there. And it really became an opportunity for me to further my research in the area through the approaches that I thought I could be innovative with at the, at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was met with creating a proposal that would be interesting to the Becoming Men Research Project, which was uh, headed by Eileen Moyer. And the last thing I guess I'll say about the application is that then this was the well this was the initial stages of the application process for me and that it was eventually accepted by the research mm. project and Eileen Moyer became my supervisor so that's how I ended up at the University of Amsterdam so there had to be a project that reflected your uh, your personal interests basically which yes. was very lucky. Was it was it a matter of luck, Sarita? That that's what I wanted to ask you. Or is it just a matter of um, other factors that also contributed to your your fortuitous meeting with that project? Well, first of all, I was building up my profile throughout those years. So even though there were letters of rejection, I was doing other jobs and um, working and becoming parts of networks, which I think is important. Um, and important if that's the direction you want to go in to continue doing the work if you have the capacity to because to some extent a lot of that is um, volunteer work as well so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that yeah, it's a lot of luck as well. It, it just so happens that projects will pop up, or that the um, application will be of interest to the project. Um, I know that. Well, actually, I don't know, but I know that the projects tend to receive a lot of applications because there are so few uh, paid PhD positions, and yeah. there's a lot of people that want them, and and um, it makes it very competitive and difficult to eventually, hopefully, move into one. Yeah, and I I can imagine even even writing those proposals that get rejected further uh it requires a lot of time and and to a certain extent free labor exactly so if you have the capacity to do and write proposals it takes a lot of work it's not guaranteed so that's the risk in this industry as well and it's not just with a phd um a phd position it's after a phd of course as everyone knows with grants and uh, postdoc applications and um yeah continuing. So so I, I will say that the larger research project that I joined was focused on the African continent. And so much of um, my project became really an opportunity to be taught more about a post-colonial, a sort of post-colonial politics on the continent. And mm-hmm. I did have to think about a different space um, and compared to where I was doing my research before, of course, and what I yeah. was doing in my master's. But I was going to have to also work a part-time job while doing a PhD. So it was really intimidating for me once I got the mm. position. Uh, yeah. I was happy to, and I was also very intimidated. So how did that work, this, this kind of process of negotiating your, um, since making your direction of, from your initial application of, no, from your initial field of interest to the actual proposal that got accepted. How how did that work? How how did you uh, how did you calibrate um, that your personal interest with the interest of their project? Was was there any uh, was was there a challenge in that process for you? I think it's well. I'll say it's all challenging, <laughs> and I think that's yeah. why I go into it as well. Is because I'm very interested in pushing my thinking. Uh, on the topics that I was interested in. And because I was coming from this men and masculinity scholarship and masculine identities, I was mostly studying marginalized communities and I was really interested in challenging this idea that problems and research should be done to, you know, fix only uh, to fix populations associated with poverty or marginalized populations. And in the first year of my PhD, we have, um, that's the year that we're doing, you know, proposal writings or doing our mm. official proposal. And I situated my project in what could be deemed uh, sort of a progressive community uh, to take it a step further and sort of populations that are already that have already been critiquing or challenging society in South Africa. So this was the art world for me, and South Africa became the field site. And what I was interested in 
was this space that is both critical of social issues, but also an economy that makes profit. And the art scene did not only serve as an interesting place to sort of ask these questions that I was thinking about, but it also allowed me to double up on studying history through the contemporary mm -hmm. art. And that was being made that was in my fieldwork, but also how the industries and institutions were in a post-colonial era and in South Africa in a post-apartheid era. All of that I was mulling over in my head, and in 2016 I started my field research in South Africa, and I was immediately denied entry. <laughs> Okay. So when I arrived there, um, I had been denied because of the administrative issues, and I was really both worried because I didn't know what the consequences of that would be, but also it felt very obvious in some way because, I mean, I was another white anthropologist going to do research on the continent, and um, this whole initial experience that I had when I first went to South Africa, ended up landing me in Johannesburg instead, where I did have a lot of conversations around exclusion, but also uh, this moment that I was there was the, the year after the Roads Must Fall and Peace Must Fall mo movements that were mm -hmm. occurring uh, that called for furthering processes of decolonizing in higher education in South Africa. So this is just to sort of walk through the, the making of the proposal and how different events shifted the thinking and where yeah. I ended up. And that the context of my research, this was the context that my research took place and where I was taught about the importance of thinking through these industries of critique, be it the academic you know, world that was being critiqued by the Rose Must Fall and Peace Must Fall, and also the art world, which is a parallel industry that runs yeah. well in parallel to the academic yeah. industry. What would be some of the challenges that you found in, um, in, in, in after the proposal, right? Like in, in just starting doing it. And you mentioned a little bit uh, before uh, maybe the challenge of, of, of uh, matching the PhD also with a part-time job. And maybe that was also an area of challenge or maybe not. But I, I would love to, um, to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so there's so many challenges throughout a project that is five years long and you're constantly developing, constantly learning how to balance and readjust. And I will say that throughout the PhD, I was creating skills and doing ethnographic research and, and creating and doing it. And now I'm currently exploring how to write the genre of ethnography. So I think that well, I first came into this position having experience in creative writing, but versus in my master's where I was really a student learning and receiving instruction in my PhD, I, I needed to learn how to take the initiative and teach myself how to do research writing, basically, mm -hmm. which was a very different type of writing for me. And I think that, that yeah, that was a big challenge for me and I'm really happy that in, 
basically the last year, I think, I've started to see ways of bringing creative writing back into my work. Um, I think that also, what also I wanted to say about this was that, I, I mean, I often see around me that the institution advocates for the big final results, you know, um, mm-hmm. but everyone is really struggling on how to get there, and there's not so vis- so much visibility around these processes. So, trying to troubleshoot constantly the writing process, and well, is just as as challenging as doing the research, and just as challenging to do and create the idea and be innovative yeah. with the idea yeah. as well. You said you maybe found the way to also uh, incorporate or like bring the creative writing back into this academic way of expressing yourself. When I come back from the field, of course, there is so much, uh, you're so much in your data and just trying to sort and fight the anxieties of how are you going to move forward with all of this information. And I think that there wasn't a lot of space for me in my process to, yeah, be able to write creatively and link. There was a different type of creativity that was happening, linking ideas or pieces mm-hmm. of information together mm-hmm. um, versus now where I am rewriting pieces of my work and really, you know, going back into the, the, that world that I'm, that I'm writing on that paper and feels a little bit more at ease. Um, and the stories are a bit more rounded out and I like bringing in those details. I like, you know, creating emotion with that when I already know what that story is and sort of just feeling it out a bit more and that gets me super excited um so i don't know maybe that's what more towards the end of writing feels like i also know that there's a lot of panic (laughs) yeah so 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 would you say that somehow your your spaces of uh where you find pleasure kind of helps balance out the moments of panic I mean, I'm hoping that's the case. (laughs) And I think that, again, with such a long-term project, five Mm. years, you start to see the rhythms uh, emerge of your own habits, of your own flux of of anxieties um, and productivity and creativity as well. So uh, I think that in the beginning, I really couldn't trust the process. It, I mean, how could I? Didn't have a whole lot of experience. So yeah. this allows for me to more towards the end to become more trusting of it and trusting of myself, really. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. trusting that that creativity will flow back in or that product, productivity will come back um, and how and when to take breaks and care for yourself. Yeah. So what exactly led to this building of trust in yourself? Can you can you pinpoint to some key moments or key key uh, I don't know um things that that enabled you to get that there? Um that's a good question. So there are definitely key moments. I think that for me it had to do with both the support of 
people that you find that you vibe with around you to mm-hmm. hand over your work to and, and to create trusting environments and that you can think, think critically about the work. And I think that there's also a lot of other things like taking courses, um, creating workshops yourself. You know, there was a shift where I was taking a lot of workshops and then at one point I thought, oh, I'll try to create a workshop myself. And that was really empowering for me and built confidence for me. And I was excited. Um, I to to bring people together and that wasn't necessarily something that I was able to do had the energy or the confidence to before that so I think it has to do with your community it has to do with your own processes and your own self-discovery as well and and also yeah learning how to to move through these 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 works and get feedback on them and uh, develop it. This has to do also with diff- where you are pursuing this type of long-term project, a PhD, because I understand that it's very different in the U.S. versus the U.K. versus you know other mm-hmm. countries in in Europe and elsewhere in the world. So uh, I think that it depends on what you're allowed to do, what's expected of you, and how you can also create a, within those, those frameworks, things that you need for yourself as well in your own processes. Yeah. Um, I have a question, you know, um, I, listening back to your story from, from the beginning, you know, those two years, um, writing applications and getting rejected to, to all the experimentation and the learning processes that you went through, uh, up until this moment, I wonder, um, it, it sounds that it sounds uh, also at the same time a story of resilience um, going through this process of uh, applying and, and going through a PhD. So I wonder if this resilience kind of it's part of your personality or something that you already had as a starting point in this process or something that gets naturally developed as you go through this process more feminologically. I think both. I, it's, it's nice if, I, if I'm a bit of resilient. But I think that also as you, or not as this, but I would suppose that in life you have to be resilient um, uh, as creatures on the earth and um, making your way. But also throughout the process and gaining experience and confidence with new tasks, new you know, uh, skills that you acquire, new communities that you become a part of that hopefully lift you up and give you confidence and you collaborate with. So I think that um, it's all part of the process. And, you know, entering into into an academic industry, where there's, of course, like a limited amount of resources, it's tough because the reality is is that, as I mentioned before, there's only a few positions, and the industry promotes the idea of, of access based on merit. And we all know that the possibility to gain the right skills or get access to, you know, quote, the right networks, it's a very complicated process for people with all sorts of 
different skills and struggles. And I yeah. see that play out in my cohort and um, my community as well. It's also hard to give advice because there's different lessons that everyone is learning and there's different prejudice that everyone is dealing with and different you know, insecurities that we all have. So I, I guess I would just say that um, you can't all you can't put all your value in your work as well and sort of don't let you know capitalism win <laughs> i guess yeah other yeah. As well. yeah i i wonder because you're mentioning so many dimensions that are asked of a phd candidate um i wonder where where would you conceptualize the value that you're producing um and also looking back into how you started with just a desire to to dig deeper into a topic of interest um so to what extent no how does that land for you in a space of production of knowledge and and what does that look like at the end of this process that's a really great question <laughs> um i think that it depends on where you want to head and being able to have a bit of perspective in being able to focus on the skills that will benefit you and where you want to head. Because, for example, you may not want to, well, first, some people don't want to stay in academia, which is also, um, you know, uh, then you have to pick the skills that you want to hone for the area in which you do want to go in. And that may not be, for example, writing. That, you know, so to go to a whole bunch of writing classes may not be the most beneficial or to learn how to do grant writing um, specifically for academia may not be beneficial. You may just want to get the degree in the area of interest so that you can apply it when you move into different organizations that deal with those areas like gender equality. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's what is important to acknowledge that we all have these different paths and different ways of doing a PhD and that even though there is a, you know, a certain like finish lines or, or uh, yeah. accomplishments that you need to have yeah. in it to take them off, um, it, it's a balance between exploring things that you might not have tried otherwise, but also focusing on um, the things to get the PhD done as well. So yeah. for example, yeah. in my last year now, it's you know learning how to also say no, because you need to protect your space or your time to get that PhD done and to get that writing done um, and so that you, you know, both that I'm sure your supervisors want you to finish it, but also that you can move on to the next thing. Um, Sarita, I would like to ask you, what, uh, what is it that you would like to go for? Where, where, where will you be heading? So, well, first I need to finish the chapter that I'm working on right now. Yeah. Uh, Short-term goals. But also, in the long run, it's really important for me to work on um, multimodal and art projects. Uh, so, because I want to continue thinking critically about the ethics of knowledge making in uh, post-colonial settings. So, I would like to... Uh, keep moving 
in, in that direction. And in the rest of the time that I have, the rest of the funded time that I have left, to really learn as much as I can. Um, because as I mentioned before, after there are no guarantees. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I really want to, you know, foster a believing in myself and, and, um, and the creativity that I continue to work with for these sorts of yeah. projects. Yeah. Saida, I wanted to ask you, kind of comparing your, your, your past years into the PhD to your previous work in development, what would you say the PhD track gave you that, that other uses of your time, particularly in, in that type of workspace, um, lack or don't, don't bring to the table? Well, I have to, I, I've spent more time in academia than, I, I don't know, I have to do the math actually, than, than <laughs> in NGOs and, and, and other projects. But I think that for me, I really like, I also am good at, I think, <laughs> yeah. um, sort of brainstorming and, and thinking critically about the thought processes and, and what happens in, in programs or the ways in which we, um, how do I say, sort of make the knowing about projects. So back yeah, to this yeah. knowledge making and sort of the way in which we believe that things should um, happen and, and to question why. And yeah. I think that academia gives me the opportunity to hash out and spend a lot more time with the why, which can be very destabilizing. So you need that space and you need that time. And um, hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, it, through the writing allows for you to process some of that. So you can be in conversation or go back to the, the work that uh, in, in NGO, for example. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I, and, and then maybe also the co connection to that, if you would have, um, let's say, two questions to offer to that to, to somebody considering a PhD track, what, what, what powerful questions should they ask themselves to help them make that choice for them? Do you have one, some, a few that you would think about? Powerful questions. <laughs> maybe not powerful. Yeah, powerful. Maybe it's a, yeah. Like, like I, I find questions very interesting tools. Like, what, what, what do I need to ask myself um, to help me uh, make a choice whether to go down that path or not? I don't know if it was so much the questions because the other thing is is that so for example I off the top of my head I think you know uh, really why are why do you want to do a PhD I think that's a very broad and simple question um, and that people often get asked and I think the questions were more I don't know if I would have listened to all the questions. I don't know if I did listen to all the questions. Okay. You know, what, what I, or take it or took the advice, you know, to some extent I had to find hmm. what was relevant advice to me or not. And a lot of things that I had to go back and be like, oh, that was good advice. I should have started that. Now I would do that <laughs> years later. But um, I think that a big part of the, that question or, you know, why do you want to do a PhD is also getting super honest with yourself and mm -hmm. really, you know, sitting down and saying, okay, you know, what is this 
giving me am do I want to do it to pursue this topic? Does it help me um, get to the next you know, pay raise in my other work that I'm doing? Uh, how much time am I gonna spend or do I wanna dedicate to it? And, and because as I mentioned before, there are different ways of doing the PhD and there are different ways to hone skills or different skills that you can focus on. So I think it's really getting honest with yourself about why you want to do it. Yeah, yeah. It will change. So the, and also being open to that change that you might discover you're doing it for a different reason later on. Yeah. Or that yeah. you want to do it for a different reason later on. Yeah. Is there also a question uh, exploring the type of relationship that, that you want to build with the academic space and with this whole culture of academia in itself? Because you are talking a lot about um, the community that sits within academia, the, the space that the academic environment gives you to reflect on things. So is also something in, in, in that relationship to the academic space and how comfortable you are in it or how much you want to enter it that that should also play a role? For sure. I mean, I've been working out of my apartment for many months now um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, everyone is working on a lot of cool stuff at the university, and I get distracted. And so it's about learning like where you're going to be productive and where you're not. And I like the people, you know, that are there. And so I want to catch up. And the joke is sort of like that you go there to socialize and go back and do your work. There are, um, you know, there, are, there was a point when it created a lot of anxiety for me as well in not being productive and seeing everyone being productive around me. And so needing to not be in that space because it wasn't helping me either. So it's, and, and, and learning to listen to yourself and those, again, rhythms that you're, um, that in this long-term process, you're going through and you will go through and how to sort of foster what you need um, as a human being and as an academic. Oh, this is beautiful. I'm actually looking forward to reading your piece. Well, yes. Thank you. <laughs> for, for those of our listeners, um, uh, Sarita, that want to uh, go deeper into the content of your PhD and maybe some of the articles that you've published, is, is anything available out there? I can be contacted via you know, email, of course, and I am particip participating mostly in conferences and conference papers. There is a uh, website for the broader research project that I'm sure we can link to as well. Okay, so um, we'll, we'll put any links that are already available uh, to Sarita's works in the episode descriptions for those that and yeah. also her contact details for those of our listeners that want to dive deeper into this the fascinating world uh, that she is exploring with her PhD um, and yeah and from our end thank you so much for this uh, fascinating uh, discussion Sarita and uh, from my end I, I really wish you all the best moving forward thank you so much for having me as well thank you for listening everyone Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.